When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Academic Life. This is the podcast for your academic journey and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Montana Lee, who was part of the Duke Diary Dispatches Project, and she's here to share with us about it. Welcome to the show, Montana. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. I'm glad that you're here and we get to hear about what the Duke Diary dispatches are and why you became a part of it. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? So I'm a sophomore at um, Duke University. I'm studying mathematics with uh, certificates, which are like interdisciplinary minors in philosophy, politics and economics and decision science. Um, I'm from New York City. And yeah, I mean, that pretty much describes me. I guess there are a lot of other things I could talk about, but what's most relevant to this podcast is this summer, I took part in um, a service program called Duke Engage, which was fully funded by the university and went to rural Togo. So Togo is a really small country in West Africa. And we went with a cultural anthropology professor, Charlie Pio, who's been going there um, every year to do research since the 80s and running a program for Duke students since 2008. And um, every year the projects differ, but generally the whole, the the gist of the program is that we do cultural exchange because the locals really enjoy having us there and it's very eye-opening for us. And we work on some development projects, whether that be teaching, um, writing, medical insurance, or engineering. How did you become involved with the project? Take us back to what you had to do to apply and what encouraged you to 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 apply um so honestly i applied at first out of um, fomo fear of missing out the deadline so back in the program ran for for me ran from may to july 2023 and the deadline was i think early february 2023 to apply and um duke engage is a big program so there are like lots of dozens of international programs and there are also some domestic ones and the deadline was coming up i had looked at the togo one i didn't think i was that interested but it was on my radar and like in the week before everyone was talking about duke engage and you know asking each other oh are you gonna apply are you gonna apply and i figured you know what why not it'll be good to have the opportunity and this sounds cool and if i like even if i'm accepted i don't have to um go it's not binding like an acceptance is not binding so I just decided to apply, and that was um, through a couple of essays um, just about yourself, about, like, your engagement with the world and stuff like that. And I got – my program wasn't a big one because you do have to speak French to um, participate, which prevents a lot of – like, it makes the applicant pool a lot smaller. And then so the professor, Pio, reached out to us um, asking to discuss – Um, for a little interview in person. So that's how the application process went. 
It's unusual for um, someone who's a freshman to apply to go spend time abroad. It takes a bit of confidence to feel like you can do that. Prior to starting college, you had taken a gap year. And for four months of that gap year, you were in France. Do you feel that experience helped you feel confident that you were ready to be abroad again? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, France for me, yeah, so I spent the first half of my gap year, I worked um, for the audience and I saved up money and applied for my visa to go to France um, for longer than three months because that's how long U.S. citizens can go. And um, so I, I went to France kind of just not knowing what to expect, but I just moved there. And it was a really new experience for me. I never lived in a country with a different language and culture before. So... Um, I did feel like pretty lonely at times and like, you know, all alone in this big new city. And I learned a lot of resilience through that, like just life skills, like how to take care of myself, like how to have good days, like how to come up with things to do um, and just like how to peace, how to, yeah, how to take care of myself in a totally new environment. So I definitely think that prepared me for going into Togo. And I would say like that, my experience in Togo was in some ways not as challenging as my experience living in Paris during my gap year. How so? Um, I think in Paris I was pretty lonely because the, it was an unstructured, I didn't really, I didn't participate in a program or anything, just applied for my visa, which required me to take some French classes in the morning. So I did that. But other than that, I had nothing planned. So there's no structure in my days. Um, and it's not always easy to make friends in a new city. So I think I just felt kind of aimless, like I was floating around with um, nothing really tying me to the city. So like that was, I felt like pretty lonely like that for a few months. Staying with the host family for the first two months did really help. And they were really nice. And I really enjoyed it. And the second half, I was living alone. So that was also um, quite difficult. But then I got, I decided, I decided I needed to look for a hobby. So I got really into social swing dancing in Paris. And that's how I found my people. And like, that's how I found a community. But in Togo, I had this built in, I stayed with the host family of these wonderful women, like all, it was pretty much all women in the host family. Then there's a brother and the dad came by every so often. Um, but I had a great host family. It's really like dynamic. I had my five other Duke students with me. So like a built-in social network. And we saw each other at least three to four times a week, um, every week. Like we would have a schedule every week of outings to the nearby city for supplies on Wednesday. Um, Fridays, we would have lunch up on the mountain. On Saturdays, we would have lunch down in the in the village, in the um, plain, and go to the market. So in Togo, I had a lot more um, structure and a lot more of a built-in social support network than in Paris. And of course, in Togo, there's also like the tasks I was working on for the program. So yeah, that in that way, like socially, it was a lot better of an experience. Did they have an office there at Duke that helped you get everything together? I'm thinking maybe not everybody who applies for these programs has the advantage of having traveled abroad before or having family members who have to give them guidance. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Duke has an office of global health and security, and they work closely with Duke Engage. Duke Engage is a very established program. I think um, Melinda French Gates um, 
endowed a lot of money to do engage, I think. And so it's, it's very well developed and has a lot of resources. And so they organized our um, like travel clinic where we got a bunch of vaccines for all these tropical diseases, uh, like typhoid, uh, yellow fever, polio, or not even tropical, just diseases that are more common in underdeveloped countries. Um, we got malaria medicine. Um, we were given these little cards for a, like an ins- uh, not insurance, but like a, an international health hotline called International SOS. And uh, we did have trainings to do. We did do trainings um, in person before our program started. And those did address like, what is it like to live in a new country? What are some rules of thumb for staying safe? How can I engage with the local culture? So yeah, they definitely do. Um, they, they certainly try to give us resources to um, help us adjust and prepare for um, experiences like these. Did you all travel together or did you all have a time that you needed to be there and meet up and then your project leader would start taking you to those places in Togo where you were each going? So we all traveled together, um, the students. So there are six students and we all got very close by the end, but I remember we all flew. There aren't that many flights from um, the U S to Togo. It's pretty much either from New York or from Washington, DC. And it's from Ethiopian airlines. So stops in Lome, which is the capital of Togo first and then goes to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Um, so everyone who didn't live in the New-, New York area flew to Newark. And I live in the New York area, so I drove, my family drove me to Newark. And we all met up at Newark, and we hopped on the flight together. And that was like the beginning of really getting to know each other. It was quite fun. We couldn't really believe that we were actually doing this. But yeah, we got on a flight together. And once we landed in Lome, we let our um, project program director, Charlie, um, Charlie Pio, the cultural anthropology professor, know. And he um, picked us up at the airport. And you ended up staying with a family on what sounds from the description like a farm. Yeah. So rural Togo is pretty much all um, agricultural. Like everyone in Togo in the rural areas is a subsistence farmer. And sometimes they do some things on the side, but subsistence farming is the primary vocation of everyone just because that's, that's how they um, feed themselves. So yeah, it was a, it was a farm and it was in a village, but it, it, it wasn't like a traditional American farm with like rolling hills and like a red barn house or anything. It was more like there are a lot of people living in the village. And so there are lots of cultivated plains and then um, small like clay mud brick house, houses or compounds scattered throughout. So I lived in a, um, a compound and we had a courtyard in the middle with rooms around um, latrines in the corner. And I had my own room in the middle. We had um, this concrete platform where we could lay things to dry or just hang out there uh, and a little mango tree. So it was really nice. And out front, outside of our um, compound, we also had these two large mango trees for shade and everyone has fields everywhere. So in the morning or whenever they were cultivating, they would, we had the fields next to our house, but they also had fields that were probably like a 10 minute, 20 minute walk away that they would go to cultivate and they would grow things like corn, um, 
yams, uh, sorghum mainly, also soy. And then they also had animals, but because the animals that they had don't have a natural predator in that area, they could kind of free range? Yes. Um, Yeah, there were chickens everywhere all the time. They would run into our homestead a lot. Um, We had sheep. They're really fun. We had lots of sheep and goats there, actually, and they would... A lot of times they just walk around. Sometimes they are tethered, especially when um, sprouts are growing, like closer to the start of um, cultivation for a certain plant. But generally, if there wasn't anything that they weren't supposed to be eating, they could roam out and about. And like even in their pens, they had a lot of space. We had hogs as well. Those pigs, they, those were kept in the pens all the time. But yeah, the animals definitely, definitely lived in much more free and happy and like open air life than most animals do in the U.S. You mentioned earlier that you're from New York City. Was this your first farm stay? No, actually it wasn't. Um, During my gap year, I worked in upstate New York on a farm. So that, it was obviously a lot more developed than the, than the homestead in Togo, but uh, so, but it did count as a farm experience. So that was not my first time. You talked earlier about the differences between your time in Togo and your time in Paris. Were there differences that came to mind between your time in upstate New York on that farm and the farm in Togo? Hmm. I haven't thought made that comparison as much in the past. Cause I think like Togo and France are both French speaking and both seemed more like you know, international adventures in my time upstate. But um, I was in upstate New York. I was just really working a lot. Um, uh, I was working like 50 hours a week usually. And during the week I'd work like in a greenhouse mostly. So it wasn't actually as much outdoor farm stuff. And on the weekends I would work at, um, as a wedding server. So it was pretty different. So I don't really, um, I didn't really compare those two times now. And your purpose for being on this farm and your time there was a bit different. You were part of these service projects that uh, Duke Engage has already put down roots to do. And you list in your uh, Duke diary dispatches, which were these online diary entries that you gave Duke permission to put on their website as part of a project they have for many of the students who went away over the summer to help people understand what this project is. You listed a number of the things that are going on there in Togo through Duke Engage and that you might have been part of any number of them. Which ones did you end up being part of? Yeah, so it defers every year. Um, I thought there would be a lot more options before I went there, but as um, Charlie, our program director, told us, like, you can't, it's really hard to plan ahead in Togo because everything there and the nature of how people like plan there they don't really plan that much it's more like things are happen pretty spontaneously um so ever so he just told us to like that we would learn how to like adapt and just change our plans really well and he was right um so i gave a list of all the programs that had happened in the past or like where ideas like medical insurance was one there have been a few engineering projects um, there was an idea to do um, like folktale collection, which has happened in the past, as well as a writing collective. Um, the, the 
constant has been that every year people, students, Duke students teach classes um, to locals and that, that are open to anyone. So those can range from like computer classes to um, English classes to like writing classes. So that's mainly what we worked on this year. And we did offer a lot of classes this year. Like this year, this past year we had um, informatique, we called it, which was just like how to use a computer. And Duke had some funds to like provide computers in the um, a few years ago in the Cyber Cafe. I taught Mandarin and creative writing in French. So those are two separate classes. We had English. We had a flashlight making class, which involved um, some like circuits because we had an uh, electrical and computer engineering major um, who was in our Duke Engage cohort, Spencer. And I'm, I think I'm forgetting. Um, oh, yeah. My friend Bella ran a photography class. So, yeah, this year we mostly focused on classes. There were some it, it, the other projects didn't just didn't really um, end up working out this year. But yeah, I, I'm sure it'll be different again next year. You tell us in your Duke diary entries that when you arrived, there was a welcome ceremony for you. Can you can you tell listeners about that? Yes, of course. So this was in early May. And the we were in the capital, Lome, for two days before we went up. Um, and it's like a seven to eight hour drive all the way up. So it's like a full day's trip to go to northern rural Togo, which is where we were. And so we just, what I remember is that like we drove in two cars um, to the base of the mountain. One of the cars, we had hired a taxi and it was just completely, um, the car was like in very bad shape and it did not fit all the luggage. So, but you ask um, like Togolese taxi drivers, oh, will this fit? I don't think this car is big enough. They said, don't worry about it. I got it, (laughs) which is really funny because that consistently, that happened several times. Um, So what they did was they would just stack all the luggage in the trunk and then leave the trunk open and then just put straps around it. So it didn't look very good and it probably wasn't that safe, but it worked. And I mean, we had our seatbelts, so yeah. And we were driven to the bottom of the mountain and the people who were staying in the plane. So that, so the way it worked was that four of us, um, we're living in the plain Ferende, the village, like at the base of the mountain. And two students were living in Kude, which was the village on top of the mountain, along with a professor uh, slash program director. But the first night we all stayed up on the mountain because that's where that's the older village. And that's where like the more traditional customs usually happen. So we were dropped off at the base of the mountain. Um, the locals refused to let us carry our luggage. So they carried it for us. Um, a lot of kids did it. It's like an honor for them, and their parents will actually be really mad at them if they don't if they don't carry our luggage. So we just let them, and we went up. By the time we got up to the top of the mountain, which was about an hour's hike, it was dark, and there were a bunch of plastic chairs set out for us. So we sat in them, and Charlie and the bunch of local men spoke. Um, one of the local men was actually wearing a Duke hat that had been given to him in the years prior. And they they were speaking Kabye, which is the local language. 
Um, and obviously we didn't understand any of it at that time. And we had, I wrote about it in my diary dispatches. I remember drinking this local sorghum beer that they drink, which is called Saloom um, or Chukudu. And it tastes like warm kombucha, but it's part, it's quite warm, like yeasty kombucha. It's quite good. And they also killed a chicken there. I mean, let its blood onto the ground and had us walk over. I'm not sure what the significance of that was. I was, I just, I just remembered being, being very tired and confused. Um, yeah, <laughs> it could, you could probably get a slightly better idea of it in my diary dispatches, or I'm sure if I went back to actual my, like my, my, my diary entries, then I'd have a better description for you. You're a person who has a history of keeping diaries. So when you were asked to do this project, did you have a feeling that you would give them your actual diary entries or did you feel that you would sort of recraft them for the Duke project? Yeah, definitely the latter. I did not give them my actual diary entries. I recrafted them and I wrote, I pretty much wrote them. I wouldn't have written those entries for if it hadn't been for the Duke project. And I'm really glad I was, I found out about it and I was asked to do it because I think that produced some pretty thoughtful um, writing and reflection that I wouldn't have done necessarily if it had if I hadn't had to present it um but yeah I do I do journal a lot I did I start during COVID I can't remember maybe I started maybe in 2020 um just you know I think we were all going through a lot and it was a pretty historical moment so to record that and I mean never I didn't really do it consistently until my gap year until I was like wow this is a special experience and it's so unique and I need to record all of this. So when I was working up in upstate New York I journaled every single day. I have a full I have a notebook that's like an entire notebook just for that time of my life and it was really it was only it was just over 2 months. Um and I also journaled a lot when I was in Paris, though not as much. I def- um, so yeah, I have a history of on and off journaling. Sometimes it's helpful for me. Sometimes it's not as much. I think when something special or like unique, like once in a lifetime is happening, then I tend to be really good about journaling every day, which is why I journaled often when I was working upstate. Um, that was my first job and in Togo. So coincidentally, both times were like kind of on farms. But yeah, I... For the Togo journaling, I just journaled every day because to record what was even happening because it was such a unique environment and like lots of cool things or interesting interactions would happen every day that I'd write about. Um, so even if I was really tired, I just try to get something down. And a lot of those entries are more recording. Some of them are more reflection, especially towards the end when I think about like when I reflect on my time in Togo. But the ones I wrote for the Duke Diary Dispatches, there were I didn't get any prompt. I had total creative freedom, which was really nice. But I wanted them to be interesting to read um, and show some reflection. So, like, it couldn't just be a, a record of what happened in my day. I wanted it to include a little bit more of analysis. While you were staying with your host family, you wanted to be mindful of their electricity needs. Did you then do your journaling with pen and paper? Oh yeah, I've always journaled with pen and paper. Um, my homestead had electricity installed recently, probably in like the last, sometime in the last couple of years. I'm not sure, maybe in the last year. But to send these diary entries, um, so my for my personal journaling, like just recording my daily activities, all that was pen and paper. I've always journaled on pen and paper, and I don't see myself doing any kind of digital journaling um, anytime soon. 
um, at least consistently. And to write those entries, I would get started on paper or on my tablet, a remarkable tablet, which is like a kind of like a Kindle that you can write on. But honestly, those ones were easier to type because I am used to like having to write a lot of essays and like personal essays or like critical essays, things like that. So I would go to the cyber cafe and connect to Wi-Fi and type on my phone there, try to use the computers. Honestly, the laptops are really old and a little hard to use. So I would just, uh, all those diary entries you see on the website, I pretty much typed out on my phone over the course of a few hours or um, a few days. I definitely, I think one thing I regret was that I was too like self-restrictive on what I could write about um, or like the quality of my writing rather, not the topic at all. So I like thought I had to be really polished um, before, so I, I spent like hours on them and I didn't get, I didn't get to publish as many diaries on as many topics as I would have liked. So I wish I had just sent in a bit more of a raw, um, raw writing material. Like it would have been, it wouldn't have been maybe as good, um, or as well written, but sometimes quantity beats quality. In them, you give us a real sense of what it was like there, how you were feeling, what things sound like, what things feel like, the dailiness of it. In one, you tell us about your mattress being kind of lumpy mm-hmm. and how your host mom comes in and helps you um, get it sorted out so you'd be more comfortable. In others, you tell us about daily life customs. One of the things that might be surprising to listeners is that while you spent much of your time together, when you ate, that was a separate activity, which is kind of inverted from how many Americans handle things. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. That was something um, I'm, I really like eating with a family. And when I was living with a host family in France, that's also what we did. And it's, it's a very central value of, I think, of Western culture. So I was surprised to not eat with my family like the first week. I remember being like, oh, when will they invite me in to eat with them in a group lunch with like the rest of my cohort? So my friends and Charlie um, and his assistant, his local assistant, Fidel. And he was like, oh, no, they don't eat together. That's just not a thing here because the families are so tight knit and they spend like all of their days together working on the farm or doing whatever needs to be done, like their chores that they don't have any time to themselves. So eating is kind of the time where it's not important to eat together and they just eat quickly. Like a lot of times food is more, um, well, not, not every time, but like daily meals are more just like sustenance and you eat on your own and you eat pretty quickly. Um, I was definitely surprised by that, but it makes sense considering the fabric of their, like daily lives, just the, the daily routines and how like being a subsistence farmer in an undeveloped um, or developing country, like your lifestyle is going to be so different from like any, anything in the West. So the, yeah, the norms and the culture are really different. That was definitely one of the things that surprised me most, but after thinking about it and after Charlie was explaining to us, I figured it made sense. And so, yeah, I would eat alone um, at my table I'm a very slow eater, so yeah, that would take a while. (laughs) You also talk about how in the West there can be a real disconnect uh, between how food is produced and where food comes from and eating the food. 
But when you were there, you met livestock that were later served in the meals. Do you want to talk about having that close contact with where food comes from? Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I mostly, well, yeah, I mostly eat plant-based in the U.S. I'm not strict at all, though. Sometimes if I really want meat, I'll get meat. Um but in Togo, I definitely ate more meat because I saw how it was raised. And it was um, the way like livestock was raised there was a lot more humane and just healthy for the animals and for humans. I think um, they were it, they seemed to be like allowed to exhibit natural behaviors a lot more and just have freedom to do whatever they wanted. So that instance I wrote about my journal entry that morning I had seen my host sister like saw off the neck of one of the guinea hens so I didn't eat any guinea hen later that day and it was those same ones but um generally yeah I I saw the livestock around me and it when we ate meat it was usually chicken sometimes pork but if we ate like pork or very occasionally beef it would come from the market Um, not from our own like animals still though you could see the animals like when when you walked on the road and yeah I mean I just figured they like it's parts a part of the local experience to like authentic local experience to eat all the food they're eating and it was really good it tasted different for sure and I, I figured oh it's like the animals here lead pretty good lives. So I don't feel too bad about eating it. And like, I really believe it was part of the cultural experience as well. Like one of my friends who's pescatarian in the States and hadn't eaten meat in years, um, ate meat in Togo. And like, I think that honestly probably helped her get a more full um, gastronomic experience out of being in Togo. You mentioned that part of why you were there was to teach classes and that you taught writing classes and you also taught Chinese language classes. Were those done at the Cyber Cafe? And can you walk us through what that experience was like? Yeah, so all of our classes were taught at the Cyber Cafe, which just looks like a little, kind of looks like a shed or like a one room building with a few desks. So yeah, it just looks like a classroom um, in a very rural environment. And the Cyber Cafe was just, it had Wi Fi and it was open most hours I don't think there was a specific schedule but it was open most of the time and people could come by and pay some money for a wi-fi small amount I can't remember exactly how much it was but it would have been like maybe a dollar for a day's access or that would have been I can't remember how much it was exactly but yeah we taught our classes at the cyber cafe so during our classes we would ask people to go outside if they were watching videos or like using their phones or computers or whatnot. Um, And we would just align the tables and take out a bunch of chairs. Depending on the classes, most of our students were um, children, but we did also have adult um, students for some of them, especially for the creative writing one towards the end. And we had a recurring schedule of our classes that we posted on a sheet of paper on the outside wall of the cyber cafe and would just try to spread the, spread the news by word of mouth. 
and then we so we would just show up at the time and then go on the chalkboard and, and write and start teaching and obviously we formulated a lesson plan um so my friend and I, my friend sasha and i taught the chinese and creative writing class we, we taught the creative writing class together and we would plan it out usually the day before we would meet for like 30 minutes to an hour to discuss what we had wanted to teach the students that lesson like our thoughts on the last lesson the chinese ones i planned alone um I use the Wi-Fi for to plan those to like look at other Chinese lesson plans or just use my dictionary and see what like look at the etymology of some Chinese characters um, and and just decide what I thought students would find interesting. You mentioned in a later dispatch one that you actually were able to send in after you returned home that you weren't as confident about your Chinese. Uh, as maybe you were about your French or other things that you've uh, done, and that some of the people that you met in Togo were actually fairly complimentary about your Chinese, but the person who holds the standard for you is your mom. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, of course. So um, I think for the listeners, definitely it'll, it'll um, take a look at my dispatches first, because you'll understand more of what's going, what I'm talking about here, and that'll be linked. Um, but in Kara, which is a local capital, which is like a small city, it's more developed. It's an interesting cross between urban and rural. Um, there were, there was a Chinese hospital and there are a lot of Chinese doctors. They're like a small Chinese community, mostly hired by like NGOs or some public private partnership um, in China to do medical work in Togo and some development. The Chinese people also like built roads. And so I, towards the end, I ran into the same girl twice and I like met this group of doctors and um, they were pretty complimentary towards my Mandarin, but it's really not that good. And like, it not even, it's not even my mom holds the standard. It's me. Like my Chinese level has fallen so much since high school. I just haven't been able to practice it as much. And I, I mean, I haven't been making time to do it, but I could communicate basic information and I guess that's good enough. Um, and I mean, also, you know, they're, they're, they were very nice. Like they would never just say, Oh, your Chinese is terrible to my face. I mean, who would, <laughs> no one, no one would do that. But um, yeah, my Mandarin's very basic. And I mean, for a lot of American-born Chinese, like a lot of people whose parents are Chinese immigrants but were born in the U.S., um, a lot of us don't speak Chinese at well. Some of us don't speak any, and some of us speak it like at a native level, so it varies. But like generally, the average ABC doesn't speak fluently. So I guess they didn't expect that much of me either. <laughs> but I'm hoping to study abroad in China um, in my junior year and improve my Chinese level. One of the things you had to do to prep to go on this journey was to get a number of vaccinations, one of which was for typhoid. Um, While you were there, you unfortunately got sick, and that was one of your dispatches that you sent out towards the end of June. Do you want to take us through realizing that you were sick and, and how that experience affected you when you were so far from home? Yeah, um... A lot of it felt kind of surreal. So again, for the 
for listeners, my Duke Diary Dispatch, which was very, the title I thought was very funny and dramatic. It was in Togo struck by typhoid. And so I contracted typhoid. It was never confirmed by like a microbial like culture, which is how your bacterial culture, which is how you're supposed to do it. But the symptoms are pretty consistent and like the treatment, which was antibiotics worked really well. And I, you know, I probably got it because the vaccine isn't totally effective, but you can read all of the the juicy details of my experience realizing I was sick and getting treatment in my dispatch, which I'm very proud of. But yeah, basically I just had a high, was exhausted one day and then had the hives and a rash and then had a high fever the next day and then got really sick. Um, And then I went to the local medical clinic. So in my village for end day. Um, it was kind of like a dusty rural village clinic and there was, um, a nurse. I mean, the nurse was also a subsistence farmer. Again, like everyone was in the village. Her name was Nicole and she had a bunch of kids, but she was also, um, the nurse for the clinic. And she had seen a lot of cases of these diseases and like the local diseases. And she, um, saw me and she, like we did a a stool test and a blood test and based on like the results of my white blood cell count, um, she was pretty sure it was typhoid because typhoid is one of the diseases where if if you get sick, your white blood cell count actually decreases. Whereas like if you have a viral illness or some other diseases, it'll, your white blood cell count will increase in, in order to combat those like invaded invaders. So Yeah. Um, I got sick. I was mistrustful and feverish the first time I visited because I didn't, I didn't want to get an injection, especially because like the whole clinic was not, and like my, like I was not necessarily the cleanest. And I was like, I've been, I've always been like afraid of getting infection from like a house in a, in a hospital setting itself. It's called iatrogenic causes. Um, so yeah, but then the day after it came back and I was like, I, I need antibiotics probably. And so we discussed the results of the analysis. So after that, I was a lot more trustful, but I've always been like done a lot of reading on like medical stuff. And so definitely I had a hard time trusting the medical care, but um, after the test, I was like, okay, I need to, I need to trust in order for the treatment to work. And I did. And the treatment worked really well. I took ciprofloxacin, which is a powerful antibiotic. So yeah, you can read more about it in my in my dispatches. You took this trip in May and you returned uh, by 4th of July. We are taping this episode now in November. How has the trip changed you? That's that's a, a very good question. And in some ways, I I have to say I don't know because, or I have to say I don't know if it changed me that much as a person. I had a really good time, and for some reason, like, I mean, everything was incredibly new and wonderful, and I it was an amazing life experience and seeing the world, and it definitely proved I you know one of the ways one of the most um, obvious ways that in which. I changed or in which I grew is that I could handle heat a lot better now 
whenever I feel hot, I just think of how Togo was and then stop mentally complaining. Um, but I would say like, I had a really good experience and it wasn't that it was very like, it was very different. Like I was sleeping in a lumpy straw mattress on the floor. There's no AC. It was really hot. Lots of mosquitoes, got typhoid, like huge cockroaches at night. Um, and like the latrine, there's like not a flush toilet. It's like a latrine. So you like go to the bathroom and then like you wash it down, you pour water into the latrine to put it down into like some pipe or some storage area and then taking bucket showers. So all the lifestyle things were really different, but I had a great time. And like, I got adjusted quickly. I think humans are really resilient. Um, so, and maybe I've, I mean, I've been in rural China before. It, it really was not, it, there were some similarities with the rural China village in which I was in was more developed. Um, so in terms of like the traditional ways in which people say, oh, like, I like, you know, opened my mind so much. Like I never knew this could exist. And I feel so much like more tough now. Yeah. I, I like experienced that, but I also think, I think having grown up with a lot of like with the amazing opportunity to travel and like my gap year and stuff like this was not as of a big step outside of my comfort zone. So I would say just, I've definitely grown a lot as a person. I think I'm tougher. I'm more resilient. I'm more open-minded now. I mean, I've always been open-minded, but I know even more about another culture now and about how people live in other parts of the world. So I guess maybe I could say, maybe you could say I'm, little more globally minded now but I think I just grew generally as a person as one does with when they acquire a new life experience but it's harder for me to pin down like a specific way in which I changed it sounds like it was an experience that affirmed you rather than changed you because you're, you're talking about growth and connecting into parts of yourself that you already liked and now they are more so. Yeah, that's, that's really perceptive. And wow, I think you're absolutely right. I never thought of it that way, but yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say the trip changed me that much because I don't think I'm fundamentally different than I was in May before going on the trip. I just think I have a broader outlook now and I my outlook was already again like not narrow before um and I'm more tough but yeah I think so I think it affirmed me and helped me grow in a lot of parts of myself that I already like and just helped me mature and yeah I would say I would say like I'm a a more mature version of this of the self I of the same person I was before the trip so yeah I, li- I like that verbiage affirmed, not changed. What do you hope this episode will spark for listeners? I don't know who exactly the audience is, but for those of you who are students with access to maybe university programs, I would encourage you to um, look into them because I think a lot of times universities have great resources that just aren't shared that well. 
and um, students have a lot to gain from from searching for those. So, I mean, I hope that listening to this podcast inspires like a sense of curiosity about the world, um, a desire maybe to go somewhere that they never have before, um, and to say yes to once in a lifetime opportunities. Because even after I was accepted to the Togo Duke Engage Togo program, I was really on the fence, and like I thought, I like I kind of agonized about it over like days and weeks. And like, I talked a lot to the people who went last year and my dad didn't want me to go cause he was worried that I would get sick. Um, or like, you know, about me and being such a different place. And so there's a lot of, I almost said no to it, but I figured I'm never going to have the ex- chance to experience anything like this again. And I think I was right. Like I th- I'm planning on hopefully going back to Togo at some point, but like if I had never done the Duke engage, I wouldn't have, ever gone in the first place so I hope it also I hope that this sparks um an openness to saying yes and to seeking out new and more out there experiences for my viewers um I hope you read my diary dispatches and I hope it inspires people to also journal and also do reflection and write about their lives you know as if they were some like main character in some main character in a story or, you know, a writer for some, for, for some um, like newspaper or communication site. Cause it was really fun to write those diary entries. And I think, I mean, looking back on them now already, I value them a lot and I was just reading them again last night and they definitely refreshed my memory. So I guess I also hope that this episode, um, sparks an appreciation of the present and of each moment in the viewers. It sounds cheesy, but I think remembering what my day-to-day was like back in Togo now is so valuable for me. And um, writing the journal entries helped me a lot to help to do that now. So yeah, I hope that readers can do the same thing no matter what they are doing. I'm not readers. <laughs> Listeners can do the same thing no matter what they're doing in their lives right now. It sounds like the journaling helped you see the value in seeing life as an adventure, but also in valuing all the small moments that in a fast-paced culture like we have in the United States and, and in a fast-paced environment such as a university the small moments are often devalued because we have to keep getting to the end point yeah yeah you're absolutely right um i really i smiled to myself when you had mentioned reading like my my diaries transporting you to what daily life was like for me uh, especially the the straw mattress example um Journaling is so valuable because it's like those small and really funny moments that you can look back upon so fondly later. Like I wouldn't have brought that up in this podcast or even thought about that in this podcast if you hadn't brought it up. But I remember like one of, one of the first few weeks I was there, my mattress was really lumpy on one side and it was stuffed with straw. So I told my host family about it and my host sister and I like put the mattress up on its um, vertically and we were just like beating it down and like punching the mattress as hard as we could to get the higher side to like the straw to fall to the thinner side. And it was really funny and even so valuable to capture like little moments like that because they're part of what makes 
like life such a treat. And they're, they also help making reading back in your journals and like reliving your memories a huge treat. And I also think it's, I, I received them. Um, so I published my diaries on Duke today, which is like Duke's, you know, official, like if you think about a school newspaper, it's like Duke's official newspaper with like lots of alumni or student stories, a human interest website broadly. And it gets a lot of readers who are both Duke alum and um, people non-affiliated with Duke. And you can submit um, inquiries like through a form, like in the contact, contact us website. So that's how I got the invitation to participate in this podcast, but also someone who um, works in HR at Duke. So she's just, just like a Duke staff in some department. She sent, a message that says something like, um, I greatly enjoyed reading Montana's Lee's writings. When I read her dispatches, I was able to live her life for a day and like see what it was like in Togo. Please forward this message to her to let her know how much I enjoyed her writing. And that, so I remember being emailed that when I was in Togo and like, that was so rewarding and it really, it made my week. I was so glad to be able to share my experience with people through my dispatches because I know I was really lucky like to be at a place like Duke with so many resources and with fully funded programs like this also with a lot of like security measures in place um, and health and safety measures and like traveling to Togo is not accessible for most people so I mean that's why people that's why we read books because we can share experiences through them through time and through geog- different, you know, geographies. And so that's what my diary entries are also doing, I hope. And I hope that they also inspire people to share their own experiences through them and help people know what it's like to live um, a day in their lives. Thank you so much for being here today, Montana Lee, and sharing with us about going to Togo and about being part of the Duke Diary Dispatches Project. This is The Academic Life, and I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, hoping you will please join us again.